This episode of Empire is brought to you by Fails Markets, an options platform on Arbitrum and Optimism that gets you exposure to crypto in the simplest way possible. They've made it as easy as simply choosing up or down. You'll hear more about Fails later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Carbon. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity super easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate their liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limits and range orders, all from a beautiful UI. Check out Carbon today for unprecedented control over your liquidity. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. We have uh, Santi and me today hosting, and we have Hasib and Avichal uh, back for, a, I think this is a three-peat, guys. I think this might be the first uh, three-peat of Empire. Hell yeah. yeah. Awesome. I also appreciate that we've we've all ascended into uh, first name only territory now. Look at that. Yeah, I could call you Mr. Garg. Would you, (laughs) Mr. Garg? Mr. Garg. Well, I feel like we had our in person meeting in San Francisco. Now we went on a nice, like, cozy walk around the city. We're awesome. uh, Cozy. Yeah, exactly. Also, I can't help but notice we were all wearing black. Yeah, like this is uh, is this like a crypto thing? This is depths of the bear market. Hold on, this is technically blue, so. Ah. Is that blue? It's hard to tell with your lighting. Okay, navy. Yeah, yeah. Say navy. Sorry, my lighting's pretty shitty, but what other color are you gonna wear? It's the like we're eighteen months into a bear market. Binance <laughs> yeah, and Coinbase are getting sued this by is, the This SEC. is like grieving. This is grieving. Might as well be a funeral. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. You're not wearing yeah white to a funeral. So um, let's talk. Let's talk about like just how you two are feeling right now. I mean, we're so we're recording it. I feel like it's important to timestamp these things because things are moving so quickly right now. But uh, yeah, it's Wednesday afternoon. It's noon Eastern on Wednesday. Um, this week, the two big things were obviously SEC coming down on Coinbase and Binance. So, Hasib, maybe I can just throw it to you to be like high-level framework. How are you feeling about things? How are you feeling about like just how bad this is? The market, interestingly enough, like kind of bounced off the Coinbase news, which was interesting. So I just want to like get your high-level framework for how you're thinking about things right now. Yeah, I'd say the mood is stress-eating. Uh, it's been a pretty intense <laughs> week, that. I think, for everybody in the markets. Uh, I, I, w- I was surprised that markets were bounded so strongly. Um, it, it seems like largely what's happened is that we ripped the bandaid off. Everybody knew that this was coming. Everybody knew that one, you know, after the CFTC lawsuit, it was very clear that Binance had, had been getting up to a lot of funky business and th- this was not the only thing. There was going to be more uh, in the pipeline. After the Bittrex case and the, and the BXC case that the SEC brought, they they developed a very clear legal theory of like, hey, all exchanges are basically doing the same thing that these two exchanges are accused of doing, which is uh, operating without a BD license, operating without uh, an exchange license, and operating without a clearing agency license. So that, that's going to be true of everybody, right? If it's true of Bittrex, it's true of Coinbase, it's true of Binance, it's true of everyone. So uh, in a way, I think a, lar- a large part of what the market was relieved by was that the Coinbase case didn't have anything else in it. It was kind of a boring uh, case, right? It basically said, like, look, you're, you're doing the same thing that, that we accuse Bittrex of doing. Your, your business is basically illegal, but there was nothing else. There was no fraud. There was no, you guys did this. You guys said you were going to do this and said you did that. It was pretty clean regulatory violation. And that's, that's, that's as good as you can hope for. Um, the, the other element of it is that, okay, Gensler has publicly stated that he thought that everything in crypto was security basically besides Bitcoin. And, uh, the 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 thing that spooked the markets, I think, especially when the Binance lawsuit dropped, was that he named almost everything on Coin Market Cap in the top ten as security. Basically, five of the top ten uh, items on Coin Market Cap are securities now, uh, or alleged to be securities, I should say. Uh, so the the exceptions are Bitcoin, Ether, the stable coins, USDC, and and Tether. 
and then Doge. Those are the only things that, that he stated are not securities. Everything else is security. When you name individual coins as securities, right? If you remember when this all started with, with naming Ripple as you know, the first major security that was, that was traded in the top 10, um, everybody was like, oh my God, Ripple is security. Well, you know, I look, I don't know that much about Ripple. Maybe there's something going on behind the scenes. They had this long uh, SEC complaint. And in the complaint, there's a bunch of stuff like, oh, they were, you know, they were making markets in Ripple. I didn't know that. They were buying it at the, at the bottom and then selling it at the top and blah, blah, blah. They were doing all this stuff. And you're just like, okay, as the cop on the beat, I think people deferred to the SEC and said, okay, the SEC, they, they clearly know something we don't. We're going to delist XRP and, and, you know, okay, understood. Then they started going after more stuff and, you know, then it was, it was Algorand and then it was Filecoin. People were like, huh, really? This, this, are you sure this is a security? And then all of a sudden you say everything is security. And when you look in the complaint about, okay, it was Solana and Cardano and Near and, you know, all these things, you look at the complaint and it says, okay, what, why is this thing a security? Because there's a team and the team has tokens and they talked in public ever. And it's kind of like, okay, what? Look, I'm not going to delist every single everything on coin like I'm not going to delist everything and just become a Bitcoin brokerage. Like fine, if you claim everything is security, then go prove it in court. And so I think what you've seen here now is just the industry's fatigued. They're not complying anymore. You've basically enforced non-compliance because you've told the entire town, not just like, "Hey, this guy broke the law and he needs to go to jail." It's like, "Hey, the entire town, please report to jail tomorrow. You're all arrested. Everything you're everything you're doing here is illegal." And at a certain point, you force the industry into a corner of just saying like, okay, well, we'll see how it plays out in court. At this point, I, I can't just give a fig leaf of compliance and, and, you know, cut my business into a fourth of my, of my business lines. Like, I just can't do that. Well, and, and there's, there's a, I think there's, um, there's sort of a philosophical thing here too, which is really around credibility, right? So I think when, when you bring something like, you know, and I think there's a substantive difference between the Binance thing and the Coinbase thing around fraud and commingling of user assets and, and so on, right? And I think if you're, if you're on that end of the spectrum, I think everybody's going to step up and say, okay, great. You should not be doing that. Like, we don't want another FTX situation. People should not be touching user phones. Like, there's, you know, when, when there's fraud involved, I think that's, that's fine. But to, to Haseeb's point, I think once you start getting into this territory of, well, everything is a security, but I'm not willing to go in front of Congress and tell you whether or not a particular thing is a security or, you know, why a thing might be security, you start to, you start to erode credibility. And I think that's actually really bad. I mean, if you, if you sort of step back for a second, even a hundred thousand foot view, right? Like we, we wrote this, I've written about it before, but we wrote this, this, uh, we created this deck back in 2016, like two years before we started electric and, and Curtis and I looked at all of this data around, uh, trust. And what you see is just trust has been eroding in society since the 1970s for, for like every institution. Um, yeah, this is the government one. There's Pew and Gallup data around um, trust in media, trust in public schools, um, trust in the police, trust in um, you know journalists, trust in healthcare, trust in doctors. Like you can find all sorts of slices of this and it's all just going down since the 70s, right? And so to me, I, I think this is, this is a, an instantiation of that problem, which is over... Over the last 50 or so years, a lot of these organizations and institutions that were created um, that, into which we imbued all this trust um, have started to erode. They started to break because their, their sort of structures of operating and, and the frameworks through which they operate are just not relevant the way that they were 50 or 70 years ago. And so I think this is where it comes to a head, which is like, should we really be determining the rules of the road in 2025 with digital assets and a global market? And, you know, AI that can control billions of dollars with, you know, precedent set in 1930 about like orange groves, right? It's just that, that to me that there's sort of like, that's the actual underlying tension here is that 
we're a hundred years later and we probably need to update a bunch of the rules because there's no way people a hundred years ago could have imagined all of the ways that this stuff is going to work today. Um, but, but if you sort of, sort of, if you don't acknowledge that, and if you don't take the position of wanting to try to actually, um, work on your mandate and you sort of say like, I'm not going to try to be helpful. I'm not going to be collaborative. I'm not going to make statements on the record. Like, you know, it, what you're really doing is eroding trust. And to me, that's actually the fundamental problem because I think there's actually a really important role for organizations like the SEC to play, right? I think you want to protect consumers. You don't want fraud to happen. You don't want people to lose money. Like, um, there's a whole set of questions of how you do that. But to me, that that's actually the thing I worry about here is that we're just, this is like another instance of the system is broken and we're sort of like quibbling about like the, the nuances yeah. of like, some little stuff here, but like the fundamental problem is like a lot of these democratic institutions in society are, they're pretty atrophied and, and we don't really as a society, I work like the thing. So I'm like, it's funny, like in the crypto sense, I'm actually, I, I love it when there's a bear market. Hasib know that, who knows this, he calls me a masochist because I'm just like happiest when there's a bear market. Cause it's like, that's when the real builders are here. The noise goes away. The grifters are doing AI. Like they're all gone. It's pretty awesome. Um, but from like a from like a society perspective, I'm I'm still pretty concerned, right? In some sense, like the more crypto succeeds, the more it's an indication that like all the old systems are atrophying. The banks are atrophied. The the you know press and journalism is atrophied. Um, you know, there's questions around I mean, police legitimacy. There's questions around local government. There, you know, there's like all of these things are sort of I worry as like a citizen and as a human that like these systems have atrophied over the last fifty to seventy years, and we don't really have concrete plans to fix them. Uh, from an investment standpoint, you know, we've been as an industry looking for guidance since forever. Yeah. And it seems like we're, we're closer now, as painful as it may seem at this moment in time, we are closer to getting some sort of guidance, you know, the, what is it, the Hinman documents are supposed to be revealed as a result of the Ripple case and Coinbase is really pushing back and suing the SEC to get guidance. And um, so I'm curious, does this give you pause when you're looking to invest? Um, are you more inclined to invest perhaps outside of the U.S.? How, how does all of this compute in your investment decisions? Uh, I, I mean, I, don't, I, I suspect it was the same, which is it doesn't really change anything. Um, you know, I think that the founders we've invested in have always been technologists who see problems that this new technology can solve. And, and I think that's the right way to look at these things is, you know, like fundamentally utility will win. Like, you know, at the end of the day, I, I have enough faith in the U.S. judicial system and kind of democracy that over a period of time, like the good people tend to win out um, and, and utility tends to win over time. Um, and so I think if you have well-intentioned technologists solving real problems, then, then it'll be fine. Now, it changes a bunch of the tactics. So, for example, what we see more and more, which is really unfortunate from a U.S. perspective, is that you'll see teams hiring engineers overseas. So they're kind of hedging. They're like, okay, well, maybe half my team should not be in the U.S. Um, or increasingly, um, and I would say it's probably the the predominant uh, approach now is you just shut off the U.S. So U.S. U.S. consumers just don't go get access to these products, which is a real loss, I think, for from a U.S. customer perspective. Um, and so I think people are being smart about it. Like nobody's taking a bunch of regulatory risks that they don't need to take. And, and I think ultimately the losses for the U.S. consumer in the U.S. economy um, and U.S. jobs. Um, but it, you know, the market's big now, right? Like, you know, this isn't, we're not, we're not in 1950 where there's like one economy that wasn't destroyed by world war two. We're in this global, global economy now. And so the, the size of the market is sufficiently large that even if the U S steps away for five years, the markets will be fine. Like there's mm -hmm. enough, there's 
you know, 5 billion people on the internet now, and only 300 million of them live in the US. Like, you know, the markets are large enough to sustain really large businesses globally. But the capital markets, so there are users outside of the US, but the, I mean, the, the US capital markets are still overwhelmingly the, the biggest. So like when you guys are investing in something like, a, let's say a DeFi protocol, um, how do you think about investing in US-based DeFi protocols where maybe like the the size of the potential, like the TAM of the capital flowing into DeFi could be 100x the mm -hmm. size in, in the US that it is in, I don't know, somewhere in Europe or something like that. However, no one wants to be like the first guy through the door and get shot down. So the DeFi protocols in the States like don't actually take many risks. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, how, how do you guys think about that? Well, if you remember back before DeFi summer, before really before 2020, before COVID, um, at that time, it was considered to be kind of suicidal to start uh, a crypto project in the US. Like basically the game plan was you go to Europe, you go to Switzerland, and that's where you build all your infrastructure. That's where you do all your stuff. And if you want to be risque, maybe you have engineers in the US who are at some shell company that kind of provide services overseas. Yeah. But basically you never, you don't want a nexus in the US. And then after 2020, that kind of went away. COVID made it really difficult for people to actually do those kinds of things because of you know, travel restrictions. Uh, but also the, there was just so much positivity toward crypto in the US that people kind of assumed that, hey, it's, it's cool. You can, you, can do, you can do more stuff in the US than we originally thought you could. Um, but the ICO boom was the first thing that really turned people away from the US and said, hey, go overseas. This kind of stuff is not welcome here. Um, I think it's likely that we're, we're going to be going back to that. Um, now that's not a death knell for crypto because crypto, I mean, we've been there before. We can do that. It's not that hard. People in crypto are very, very mobile. Um, the crypto in a way is in, in a world that is moving away from globalization, where we're seeing supply chains being segregated out again and, and being deduplicated, where we're seeing, you know, the US and China trying to segregate their economies and minimize trade relations, uh, where we have internets basically being cordoned off from each other. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. trying to kick out TikTok and China kicking out all these U.S. companies. Crypto is, is in a way, the only thing moving in the opposite direction. It is the only thing that continues to be global fundamentally in its nature. And that's not just true in the blockchain itself, but also the way that these companies are formed and the connections in the crypto community, right? We all live on Twitter. And on Twitter, you don't, you don't know where, what, what country somebody lives in. You don't know, you know, just looking at a, a Twitter address or an Etherscan address for that matter doesn't matter to you if this person lives in Germany or if they live in Hong Kong or they live in Singapore, they live in Dubai or they live in Puerto Rico or they live in uh, New York City. It's all, it's all the same. And the intellectual capital and even the, the, the companies themselves, like the, the, uh, the value of the organizations that we've created, they're mobile. They can stretch, they can mutate, they can move. Uh, and so I, I think for us as investors, it doesn't affect us that much in the sense that we can still, you know, the same organizations are going to persist. They may have to, you know, get up and move. But crypto companies, uh, they're 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 not like supercomputers or servers where they're like, you know, stuck in one location. And you know, it's like, oh, okay, we, you're kind of fucked if you're not allowed to operate there anymore. It's more like a laptop. Yeah. If the cafe you're at is closing, you just close the laptop and you move over to the next one and you continue working there. Yeah. So well, I, and, I don't think that that's going to change. Well, I, we also have a little bit of a cheat code, which is um, to use a video game term is. Um, you know, we primarily invest at the earliest stages. And so when you're investing in two people and an idea or, you know, a five person team and they're 18 months from launch, and then, you know, it's going to take like three to five years to really get any kind of traction. And then really you're going to hit scale in like seven or eight years. You know, like go back, like we're in 2023 now, ETH is seven years old. Like ETH is now starting to realize 
some parts of the original vision, right? Like we have L2s, like data availability splitting out, DeFi is actually working, we have stable coins, like, so that's how long it takes. And so if you're investing at the earliest stages, you kind of have to look at, these are short-term fluctuations, right? And so the question we really ask is, in seven years, when these things are really hitting scale, will the US markets be opened up? And I tend to think the answer is yes. And between now and two or three years, when you're getting off the ground, you know, going from zero to 500 million in TVL or a billion in TVL or a billion in transaction volume, is there enough volume in the EU and Southeast Asia and the Gulf and Latin America to be able to get to, you know, a million customers and a and billion dollars in transaction volume? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the, the world is, is large enough to bootstrap off of, even if the United States capital markets are going to be the deepest eventually. And I, I tend to think in, you know, five or seven years, the US will have opened up anyway. And so it, it sort of, it changes your go to market it doesn't really change the terminal value of the thing. And so as an early stage investor, you, we kind of get to cheat a little bit in that sense, right? Like now, if, if we were like series D investors, it'd be really tough, yeah. right? Yeah. If you're trying to look at a pre-IPO company, like now is a, is a pretty tough time, I think. What's your mental model for, talk about timing and markets. Um, what are, what's your mental model to sizing these markets? And, mm. uh, you know, because a lot of the discussion that I've been seeing recently, of course, is are we too early? Uh, yeah. and, and what is really the product market fit? And of course, there's a whole host of things that we could dive into this topic, but I'm just, as a, as a starting yeah. point, we'll have to understand kind of how you think about these markets and how big they yeah. are. Yeah, I think they, um, there are a couple of lessons here from the internet and I think from, from human psychology. And so one of the things, cause you know, I was in, I was, um, my background is as an entrepreneur on sort of web two and, and uh, starting and selling two companies and then doing a bunch of angel investing into companies that have gone on to be worth, you know, 10 billion plus. Um, so things like. Notion and Figma and, and sort of, you know, more classic Web2 companies. And um, I think there are a couple of lessons there. So one really important lesson is humans are really bad. We, humans have a set of cognitive biases. And, and there, there are three or four that I think are, are uh, very common. One is we're really bad at large numbers, right? Like as, as primates, like you can tell this is five, you can tell this is 10. And if I show you a pile of bananas, you're like, I don't know, that's a lot. Like it's more than 20. It's more than 50, but is it 123? And that's why like jelly bean contests work, right? A second cognitive bias is we don't really understand exponential growth, um, right? Because as like macrobiological entities, you don't wake up one day and then there's just a tree outside your window that wasn't there yesterday. Like that, you know, bacteria works that way, but that's not how, how like the jungle works uh, or the savannas work. Um, three is we don't really understand low probability events. Like we don't have a good mental model for that. So people worry about dying in plane crashes or getting struck by lightning and they don't understand that you're more likely to die in a car. And so you get really dumb questions like what do self-driving cars do for cities? And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like that's how people die. And what a self-driving car does is like as important as you, you buying like home insurance and fire insurance. Like people just don't understand low probability events. So you put those three things together and you're like, okay, it's low probability events with really, really large numbers and exponential growth. And that's, start that's a startup, right? So like our intuitions around startups are just totally out of whack. Like they just don't map to how things actually work in reality. And so what you tend to have to do is massively overcorrect for that bias. And so if you kind of look at the history of technology, like at every point along the curve, with the PC revolution in the 80s, with the internet in the 90s, with mobile cloud, there's a moment in time where you stood there and you're like, wow, like, look at all this exponential growth behind me. That's crazy. But we're probably at the top of the curve now. And it's just going to be like linear from here. And it's going to be super boring. But really, at every single moment for the last 50 years, what you should have been doing is extrapolating exponentially. And it would have gotten to like really crazy effing numbers that would have sounded stupid at the time. But it turns out that was exactly the right thing to do. And so uh, the way we do it is we try to build models 
that we project out and we're like, let's be conservative. Let's assume these things are like super linear, but not necessarily exponential with the understanding that we're probably underestimating how big these things will get. And if even with conservative models, you can get to really large numbers, then that starts to say, well, this might actually be a venture bet. This might actually be a thing that could be huge um, because even with our, um, our, you know, wild assumptions about how big things, things can get, I suspect we're going to look around in 10 years and be like, holy crap, I can't believe this thing got this large because that's just kind of how those three biases, when they intersect, that's what you get. Like, could you have a map? I mean, it's only, it's only been 15 years since like, you know, touchscreen iPhone, Android devices, um, you know, 12 to 15 years and we have 5 billion people with phones. It's, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's just like mind blowing. Like think about the world's largest companies, like 15 years ago, these companies basically didn't exist. Um, right. It's just, it's really crazy how much the world can change in seven to 10 years. Sorry for the Let's rant. see, before we go to you, I want to ask you just on, on this point of each hole on when you say things get big, yeah. you can get scale, but that doesn't necessarily mean with disruption, you might get, so might people say like, okay, this is the revenue of banks. It's mm -hmm. going to translate and flow one one to DeFi. That may not be the case. That value might flow to the consumer, mm -hmm. which may not necessarily translate to how yeah. you monetize. And and the monetization right. aspect is something that I want to touch on. Yeah. Um, which, you know, we we a lot of these protocols get scale, meaning TVL, and they, you know, Uniswap gets is cranking out more volume than Coinbase and has like yeah. a fraction of the workforce and, and overhead. That doesn't necessarily mean that as an investor, you're going to make money off of that because for yeah. a whole host of reasons. So yeah. I'm curious how you think about the value translation in this disruption flow when you yeah. think about the, you know, NFTs could be big. That doesn't necessarily mean that your NFT project is going to be profitable. Yeah. There, there's sort of like, um, there's just like a really simple equation here, I think, which is how big can the thing get? What's your take rate, um, which is essentially your revenue. And then like, what are your costs, right? You subtract out your costs. And um, what's interesting about technology is on that first one, it tends to make that number way, way larger than people would expect. So here's, here's a concrete example. Back when Uber was doing the series A, um, you know, the, the criticism was, wait a second, how could you be worth more than a couple billion dollars, the entire tax industry is worth 10 or $12 billion. Uh, and here we are, right? And like every ride-sharing company is worth 10x what the entire taxi industry used to be worth. Because what happens is when you lower the friction of participation, the size of the market explodes and often gets you know, 10, 20, 50, 100x bigger uh, because the ease of accessing that, that utility is on your phone now, right? The second is your take rate. And I think you're exactly right. Take rate goes way down. Um, but the combination of those two things often results in a much higher number. Uh, because the size of the market just explodes. And then also because of that same technology, your cost of running that business often goes way, way down. So if you look at the, the technology businesses of today, how many people do they have to employ versus like Shell or Exxon 50 years ago, right? Like you can, you can generate more net profit with fewer employees than, than you used to be able to. And the net result of that equation, at least for the last 100 years, uh, has been that actually these, these um, entities will actually produce more net profit um, because that the way that equation works out now, there's, there's sort of a question here, I think of how does that get propagated through? Does it go to the people who use the product? Does it go to shareholders? Does that get captured by the government in some way? Like there's a sort of second, second part to that of where does the, where does the money actually flow and how does it flow? Um, but, but at least for the purposes of like an investor, you know, like those first three factors are the ones that really matter. And historically it's actually worked out really, really well. Like if you can get to scale, it'll probably be great. So I'll, I'll take the opposite side of that is that I'm, I'm nice pretty sternly anti-TAM. <laughs> I think TAM, TAM calculations are, to, are massively overrated, especially in crypto where all this stuff is just 
so nebulous that we're making it up as we go. And people are kind of backporting the answer once they figure out, oh, okay, this is what the market actually is. The, the only thing for which I think a TAM calculation is maybe useful is Bitcoin, because we have a pretty good idea for what Bitcoin is at this point, which is that it's a store of value. Almost everything else in crypto, we just have no idea. We're making it up. And the, <laughs> and the, the TAM for Ethereum is basically like, you know, the, the way that people did TAM calculations for Ethereum when I first started investing professionally in 2017 is so different than it is today, which just tells you that nobody knew. Nobody knows at any given time. And we're constantly stealing metaphors from other places to try to get a TAM number that we like. So I think where, where TAM, that it's honestly TAM is completely useless as a concept. I think the more legible an industry is, the clearer it is to understand where it's providing value and what the metrics are and what the inputs are and what the outputs are. That's where TAM becomes more useful as a concept. Um, but the reality is like, I feel like TAM for something like Ethereum, and, and it, it depends on, on what specifically you're referring to, but the, doing a TAM calculator for something like Ethereum to me is the equivalent of like technical analysis for traders, which is that it's giving you the illusion that you're doing something and it feels numerical, but in reality, you're ba you can you contort the concept to get any answer you want. And I think usually the right way to analyze something is to think just more about value, is how much value is this thing creating? How big are the problems that this thing is solving? But being able to point to like, oh, here is the market for all computation, or here is the market for all contracts, or here is the market for all computing, or mm. all, you know, whatever. Like when, when people try to describe what is the... TAM for Ethereum or the TAM for Solana or the TAM for whatever, you know, I think doing it by analogy to Ethereum, when you're, when you're doing things on a relative basis to each other, I think that's, that's, that's more useful to say what percentage of Ethereum is Solana today and can it grow? Okay. Oh that's gosh. a useful thing. But this a first so principle so analysis, I think, is... Why do you, why think, do you believe this? This is, so <laughs> is so backwards. I think it's so No, no, no. This is so backwards. Bitcoin's like the only thing you... Bitcoin's like literally the only thing you can't get a TAM for because it's just like, well, how many people want the thing? You know? Yeah, it's like totally like... No, 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 no. Completely disagree. Completely disagree. Having an asset that stores wealth, that is the only thing that we actually do understand. We have a precedence for, which is Well, no, because the TAM is like everything. That's like real estate. That's like, you know, Rolexes that's gold it's like everything that's like the one thing you can't do a tam for in my opinion that's like totally backwards here okay here's the thing uh i would i don't I, so there's there's um the bitcoin thing we got to talk about at some point by the way like i can't <laughs> <laughs> i can't believe that's a conclusion you came to okay but uh i think there's like this is a um it's sort of a straw man version of tam like i think the like hey it's all computation is just kind of intellectually lazy so to me that's not a real tam calculation that's like oh i just so how would numbers. you tam calculate ethereum then what's your yeah, what's so, your tam so, for ethereum right so i think this this is like the eisenhower quote right like the the plan is useless but planning is invaluable like the point is not the number that you get out the point is how did you think through what the number is and so if you just come up with like hey it's all computation then you're like okay well that's just a shitty plan like you didn't actually think through it properly the interesting thing is okay well like how many transactions are there really on Wall Street every day? And like, you know, what kind of bit rate is there? And like, how many such companies are there? And like, what percentage of banks would actually move their assets over? And what percentage of retail would actually move their assets over? And once you start doing it much more bottoms up way, which is like, who are my customers? How many of them are there in the world? What are the alternatives? What are the take rates? What does it mean to be 10x better? And you start thinking through all those things and you come up with something much more robust. All of a sudden, you can very quickly figure out like where is the money actually? What you know? What is the market structure like? That thought process to me is the interesting thing, and the number is kind of secondary. Back to this idea of like, 
if things work, they tend to be so much bigger than you, your intuition would lead you to believe anyway. That's, that, that's why I use like you're agreeing with anyway. me that the TAM number is worthless. It's the, the useful thing is thinking. Yeah, but, thinking but I think about still, how this market works is useful, but this correct. concept of TAM is bullshit. Yeah, I think the number is is useless, but I think the like um, the thought process of what is the market, what is the market structure, Great. where I does totally how does the money about that? Thinking is definitely we definitely agree with that. Thinking is important, and you should do that. And in that case, then let's throw away the TAM thing. We don't need the output. The inputs are what matter. So, so let me ask you, what is, what is the most valuable or the most valuable things in crypto today for consumers? When you think about, uh, you know, you guys invest across the spectrum, right? DeFi, privacy preserving apps, NFT infrastructure, the, the full gamut across geographies. What are the things that you think these are, these are the things that are like here to stay and mm. we're feel really confident that people are getting utility and value putting aside if this is going to be a massive market, but people getting a lot of value today and will go going forward. I mean, the two most valuable things by far in crypto are Bitcoin and stable coins. Like, and you just see it in the numbers, right? They're the most yeah. traded things in crypto by far. They're the most held things in crypto by far. They're the things that everybody in the world knows about and cares about and is fighting about. Um, so those are the top two, I think by a pretty large margin. Yeah, I, I think, um, uh, to, to take a little bit meta, I mean, I agree. Those are, those are two very large markets. I think store value and, um, us dollar are, are two enormous markets. The way I think about it is I think there's, there's three critical pieces of infrastructure that are being laid here simultaneously. So one is a computational infrastructure, the ability to write code, ship it. It's non-jurisdictional. It lives in the cloud. You can buy some computational resources and execute some code and, um, and that touches on things like AI even, right? Like AI has to use these distributed systems ultimately because it can't KYC itself to get an AWS account or a GCP account, right? So like these permissionless distributed and computational infrastructures, super, super value, valuable infrastructure. The second, roughly speaking, is decentralized finance um, of which stable coins are a part. And I think what's happening there is we're actually creating the infrastructure for a third space, which is not a US space and not a Chinese space. And I think a lot of the world actually wants that third space, which is effectively a U.S. dollar denominated system as a unit of account, but a system that the U.S. government can't unilaterally shut you out of. Uh, and I think the market and the world actually wants that. And that's what the U.S. markets used to be. That, that was sort of credible neutrality such that people said, OK, I'll go to New York to do the thing because the rule of law is, has primacy. And, and I know that my money's just not going to get yanked. And, and I think we're sort of like because of that erosion of trust, we sort of lost a lot of that. And so people want that second thing. And the third is NFTs as infrastructure, essentially as digital property rights, which allow you to do things like luxury goods and collectibles and video games and own those assets um, and, and sort of not get screwed by the platform. So to me, those are the three categories of infrastructure that we're creating. And then there's this whole host of applications that are going to come out of it. I totally agree. I think, you know, digital store value, digital dollars are two of the early use cases. But like to me, the underpinnings are all this infrastructure in these three categories that's getting created. And, and there's going to be multiple one trillion dollar things that come out of that. Hmm. So when you think about valuing something like Uniswap or a DeFi or just a protocol, do you think that like addressing, I don't know, you invest in maybe not Uniswap because there's all this, we can have a whole conversation about the fee switch right now, uh, especially with the regulatory stuff right now. But like when you try to value a derivatives protocol, for example, are you looking at the hmm. derivative space in capital markets or like you don't think that has it feels like Avicii, you would look at that and you're like, all right, there's maybe like a one-to-one. -one. There's like some 
model you can create in Haseeb, it feels like you're like, that has no, like the world is going to look completely different. So why would I look at derivatives in traditional capital markets to look at derivatives in DeFi? No, what, what, to be clear, what I would protest is somebody saying, ah, this is the size of all derivatives. So therefore this is the TAM. Mm. This is how I should think about what, you know, what, what is the potential outcome for this investment? Um, I don't think that's a, that's a, uh, I, I don't think it's useless to know how you, you should know how many derivatives are out there traded, but there's a lot more work to do after that, right? He's not just, ah, here, great, great. Here's the TAM and, and we can all say, great, there's a hundred extra here. Um, I, I think the, the way that I think about valuing derivatives markets is thinking about what are the kinds of derivatives that would naturally suit themselves to being traded on a public blockchain? This sort of, you know, as Avicel described it, this sort of Switzerland wow. in the sky. How, how, <laughs> what, what would want good. to be traded in that, in that venue? Right. And there's a lot of stuff, but it's not everything. Like, I, I don't think that every single type of asset that people want to trade in the real world is going to be want to be traded in the blockchain. There's going to be some divergence. And I think part of the, the job of being a crypto investor is to understand that microstructure and those differences in preferences and the differences in users, right? It's, it's very likely that BlackRock is not going to be executing on the blockchain. Um, but there are a lot of people who will. And you can see it already is that like, you know, who's, who, who's transacting in stable coins? Obviously, it's not traditional financial institutions because they don't need stable coins. They have dollars. They have access right. to all the rails that we're trying to recreate in crypto and democratize. So I think you're, you're, you're going to see a, a very different path of adoption, a very different set of users and a very different set of products and a very different ordering to those products than you see in traditional markets because of that uh, different set of strengths and different set of skills that crypto has. Right. I think it's, I think something that people forget when they're doing TAM is that when you, when you improve an offering and create new features and functions and experiences and change the economic model so that you can change price points and even like enable you new use cases, right? In the market, you can really uh, exponentially expand the market. And you can look at like um, taxis and Ubers, for example, like they introduce new economics so that you can do like surge pricing and like decrease pricing based on supply and demand. And that actually increased the market so because it made more uh, efficient pricing. And there's this, um, have you guys ever heard of the McKinsey AT&T study, the TAM study? We don't talk in, about uh, uh, or case studies in this podcast. <laughs> in, in, look, look, no, no, no. This is uh, this is McKinsey being wildly. This yeah, this is uh, this is an anti-McKinsey case study. And so, in 1980, AT and T was trying to figure out if they should go into the cell phone space. And uh, so, AT and T hired McKinsey because that's what you do, right? To forecast cell phone penetration in the U.S. by the year 2000. So they were trying to look 20 years out. Should we get into the cell phone space? And McKinsey came back and they predicted that there would be 900,000, they called them subscribers, 900,000 cell phone users, which was less than 1% of the actual figure, which ended up being 109 million by the year that they were trying to predict it by. And based on that pretty like legendary McKinsey mistake, AT&T actually decided that they would not invest in cell phones. And they only joined the cell phone market uh, went through a, I think it was a $12 billion acquisition of Macaw Cellular. And by 2011, the number of uh, cell phone users in, in, in the world had had grown to 5 billion, right? So like you can, I think this just points to Avichel's, actually both of your points that like you can be so far off by point, orders actually. of magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, like, like, yeah. Like, let's move a bit away from, from Tam here for a second because I'm, I'm really curious just to get your thoughts around like, I, I was just listening to uh, Bloomberg now and the, the CIO of Soros, a fund management said, look, crypto's here to stay. 
Um, and she plays, her name's like Dana Fitzpatrick or something. I think she's pretty smart. She said, listen, I would bet on incumbents picking up a lot of the stuff that is broken in crypto and building stuff around it. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts around, there's been a lot of kind of fallen angels over the last two years. Uh, people are dismissive of certain business models, which may or may not be true. But I'm curious, like, given the choice of investing in pure decentralized infrastructure or like a cent- another centralized exchange or service provider, what would you choose and why? Because time and time again, centralized players like Binance, Coinbase, they were highly profitable entities and they candidly control most of the user experience. Mm-hmm. Let's be clear, Coinbase uh, so, is not profitable at all, has well, not been profitable for a very long time. Binance is extremely profitable. Binance, yes. Yes. Um, look, I think right now it, it's pretty clear that it's not a great time to be a centralized company in the U.S. Um, you're facing a lot of headwinds and you're, you're, you're sort of born into those headwinds, right? As opposed to facing them when you're strong and robust and have the resources to be able to, to defend yourself. Um, Outside the U.S. is a very different story, right? You're seeing most countries besides the U.S. moving the opposite direction, which is trying to give more clarity, trying to attract the industry, uh, and trying to set sensible guardrails in concert with industry players that is going to benefit everybody, right? Ultimately, it, it's in our interest as an industry to make this stuff more trustworthy, to make people be willing to use it, to to make it very clear that you know FTX and whatever shenanigans that uh, different exchanges might be up to we don't tolerate that in this industry and we move away from it as fast as we can. And that's why FTX collapses because people were withdrawing on mass because they were like, Hey, I don't trust this thing. And that, um, on, on the, on the decentralized side, if you're a decentralized product, decentralized founder, um, it's, it's just such a, um, it, it's very clear that although in, in a way, centralized services are kind of zero sum. There, there's really room for one Binance, one Coinbase, and then after that, it's just fighting for market share, right? It's it's trying to it's trying to you know wrest one uh, uh, one pair one order book or one pair away from Binance or away from Coinbase one at a time uh, until you can build you know your liquidity mode against their liquidity mode. On the technology side, it's really not that zero sum. Like there are so many greenfield problems that are still massively, massively, massively unsolved. Where you know security sucks. Uh, UX sucks. Scalability sucks. Like all these things that it's very, very clear there, there's a lot of new things that we don't know how to do yet that need to get done for crypto to make it to the next level. Um, that I, in general, unless there's, there's, you know, some uh, obvious angle that makes a founder well suited towards starting a centralized company and going competing with, with a Coinbase or an Anchorage or whatever. Um, right now, most of the big problems that need to get solved are on the technology side. You know, we're still, as Avichal said, you know, it's only been eight years since Ethereum was founded. Um, we're in the very early infancy of this technology. That's also part of the reason, again, why I, I think TAM calculations are so useless. Like imagine eight years into Microsoft, Bill Gates saying like, ah, here's the TAM of, of Microsoft. Well, it turns out Microsoft became, you know, the trillion plus dollar company. Mm-hmm. That was impossible to foresee at the advent of all this stuff. And I think we're still in the same situation with respect to public blockchains. Well, Santi, I think there's, there's an interesting... Um... I like I like Hasib going first because it gives me a minute to think. So then I, then I can sound way <laughs> smarter. So um like the crux of your question or, or thinking about the Soros um CIO comment here, there's kind of two dimensions, right? There's decentralized versus centralized. And and these it's not binary, there's a there's a spectrum there, right? You can have a 
off-chain order book that syncs on chain with, you know, you, it's non-custodial. So you still, and so you're like, well, is that decentralized? Is that centralized? Where is that? Right. So there's a spectrum. And then I think there's a spectrum of, um, startups to incumbents. Um, and so, you know, startups are people, you know, a couple of people brand new, you know, you could argue Soros or, or Bank of America, JP Morgan might be incumbents. Coinbase kind of somewhere in the middle, like they've been around for a decade, they have a bunch of licenses, but they're still kind of outsiders to the legacy system. Or you might look at, um, uh, Fidelity is interesting because like the same family has controlled it for so long. And so you might argue that they're still, they still sort of have like the moral authority that a founder does. Um, right. And so founders like Zuck can just choose to pivot an entire organization and it's, and he just does it or, or Elon can just choose to do it because he said so. And that's really hard for Jay, you know, Jamie Diamond to do. Okay. So these are the two spectrums. And, um, I tend to think that it depends on the problem you're trying to solve, but I think the least likely to succeed quadrant in some sense is the centralized legacy quadrant. And. Uh, the more you get towards decentralized and the more you get towards startup, the more likely you are to win uh, as a, as a, as a business, as a group of people producing a protocol or trying to solve a problem, build a company in whatever, whatever form the organization takes. And the reason for that is that I think when you get new technologies and these are fundamentally new computation platforms, every time you get a new technology, you don't just get to take the technology and apply it inside an existing organization. This is why, for example, Walmart can't beat Amazon because you're like, I don't understand. You already have the warehouses. You already have the footprint. Can't you just put up a website and take some orders? Like, why is this so hard? And the reason it's so hard is that you have to upend your entire human organization as well. So like when the technology stack changes, you have to change who understands the technology stack and put those people in power. And so like in the e-commerce case, for someone like a Walmart, they had all these people who understood Procter and Gamble, and they understood that relationship with Tide and and uh, Oil of Olay and all of these things. And then they had people that understood the in-store shelf pricing. And they're like, oh, if we optimize it this way, like here's where we put the stuff in the store, and we'll make the most money. And at Amazon, you didn't have those people. You had people that understood software. They understood how to like run A/B tests and like throw it on the website and see what converted and build a better shopping cart. And that's how they thought about the world. And so those they put those engineers in charge. Meanwhile, at Walmart, it's like. They call it a CIO even, right? I don't know if they have a chief product officer or chief technology officer these days, but like a lot of legacy businesses had like a chief information officer and they call those people IT. And like anybody who's written, you know, software and is a software engineer finds that an insulting term. You know, like I don't fix your effing Wi-Fi, like I write code. You know, it's, it's a different job, but they don't understand that, right? So, and, and how do you fix that? Well, like can Walmart go, well, the Walmart CEO step aside and say, I'm no longer the CEO. I should actually be the COO. And that person who's running product is now the CEO and everybody that works in that person's organization now makes twice the money. And everybody that works in my organization makes half the money because that's how we're going to survive as a business. Like, how do you do that? Um, and so that's why the new organization can come in and, and somebody like a Bezos or a Zuck can come in and say, I'm just going to retool the whole organization. So I suspect what's going to happen with a lot of these legacy financial organizations is that the internals of the organization have to change so substantially. You have to upend the existing political uh, organization internally and put a totally different pe set of people in charge. And that tension does not get resolved by incumbents. Like you just can't, right? But like who's going to take a 50% pay cut to empower the other person for the benefit of the organization? The only people who are going to pull that off are essentially founders because they're just going to be like, look, the thing I care about is the organization surviving above all else. And so we're going to destroy the organization and rebuild it. Um, uh, or we're just going to start anew. We're just going to create a new organization that has that baked in from the start. Um, and so my bet is kind of on that spectrum, you, you want to skew a little bit more decentralized for most things, even if it's sort of a hybrid solution and you want to skew much more towards startups rather than incumbents. And so I think like 
the Soros's and, and the Bank of America's of the world and the JP Morgan's of the world likely get way left behind. And then they adopt it much later. So today, like Wall Street Journal or New York Times have managed to pivot their entire businesses to be mostly digital. But they did that in like 2020. They didn't do that in 2000. Right? It took them 25 years. And so I do think these guys will survive. I don't think they go to zero. Like I'm not short the banks in that way or anything. Mm -hmm. um, but I suspect they're going to be laggards just, and for human reasons, not technology reasons. This episode is brought to you by Fails, a new frontier in simple on-chain options. Here's what you do. You choose an asset, a strike price, and the market you want to participate in, and that's it. With its powerful and capital-efficient AMM-based architecture, Fails is able to offer low fees, automated liquidity, and effective utilization of leverage with no funding rate and known payouts. They just launched this new UI. It's super clean. Step one, you choose an asset. Step two, you choose a strike date. Step three, you pick a market and choose the USD amount. Getting exposure to crypto assets price action has never been easier because of fails. So here's what you got to do. You got to go to failsmarket.io, T-H-A-L-E-S market.io, failsmarket.io. They're on Arbitrum and Optimism. Go play around. Choose a crypto asset, choose a strike date, pick a market, choose the USD amount, bada bing, bada boom, check out Thales Market. Let's face it, concentrated liquidity is super hard. And that's why I want to tell you about Carbon. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate their liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limits and range orders. I met the team a couple months ago, got super excited about this product, and now really excited to partner with them for Empire. Let me explain it a little more to you guys. If you want to buy a token when it dips and sell when it spikes, with Carbon, you can now set a strategy that buys in one price range and sells in a higher range on repeat using a single source of automatically rotating liquidity. Strategies can be created for any standard ERC-20 token. I recently checked out the Carbon beta that just dropped, pretty blown away by the liquidity strategies that Carbon enables on-chain. It has this rich trading experience with a ton of features that you'd expect from a centralized exchange, except Carbon is fully on-chain, decentralized, and non-custodial. Just connect your wallet on carbondefi.xyz, choose a trading pair, set your buy and sell ranges and amounts, hit create, and voila! Carbon automatically moves your liquidity into your selected ranges as the market moves. I'm also excited to announce that Carbon is running an ROI trading competition until July 11. To play, click the Carbon link in the show notes, create a Carbon trading strategy, and boom, you're eligible to win USDC rewards based on the performance of your strategies. LPs, it is time to take back control of your liquidity with Carbon. Check out the link below and get started today. Now, back to the show. Yeah. I want to just touch on, just get your general thoughts on like the state of the industry, you know, how macro, if anything, is weighing on your decisions or your pace of deployment. You know, you guys, Haseeba Dragonfly, have done a number of strategies, uh, both on early stage, but also liquid. Of each other, you guys are mostly super early stage kind of equity deals. But you can do, my understanding is you could kind of yeah. play in traffic in the liquid sphere as well. Just kind of curious how you guys are thinking about like capital deployment areas or sectors that you mm -hmm. might be interested in now and uh, where you're seeing kind of the most amount of opportunities in this market. Yeah, 
I, I can go first to see. I'll give you. I'll give you time to think. Sure. I, would, I would just add, Avicho, when you guys when you guys answer this, I think like the more specifics yeah. you can add, like the the more helpful. I think the more helpful yeah, it is. Like what percentage like of your price point? When the <laughs> yeah, your, your exact <laughs> entry point. This is a yeah. helpful. Helpful. Yeah. I will do this because your compliance teams will want me to do this. Yeah. None of this is legal, financial advice, or any advice for that matter, guys. You should do Correct. your own thinking. So, yeah. yeah, this is not financial advice. You shouldn't. In general, my our GC will uh, tell you that you should never listen to anything I have to say. Uh, just ignore it. Um, so, okay. So high level and then specific. So high level, the way I think about the, the macro thing is, you know, I think there are, there are sort of um, two eyes that people are paying attention to a lot when, from like everybody all of a sudden went from a pandemic expert to a macro expert. Uh, and so, you know, people are paying attention to inflation and interest rates. That sort of like dominates the conversation, right? Those are the two eyes that people care about. Well, I think there's a third eye that I think dominates both of those two, which I care about, which is innovation. So like if we, are not able to invest in startups that are innovating and can beat a 5% interest rate, like what the F are we doing? Right? Like, like how badly did we waste our time that a, that a startup can't grow hundred percent a year because they solved a real problem. And like, who cares about a 5% base rate? Like it just doesn't matter relative to the degree of innovation that should be possible with this technology. And if it's not, then something else is screwed up. Um, and so I kind of think like the macro is the macro, like whatever, it doesn't really matter. Because if you're innovating, you're going to out you're going to outpace the macro headwinds no matter what. Now that's not to say you should ignore it, because for example, the availability of capital changes how you fundraise. Um, and I tend to think next year is going to be a really rough time to fundraise for most people because all the funds that were raised in like 22 start to hit the end of the cycle. They start to run out of capital. Raising your next fund as a VC gets harder. So if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, like this year is probably a better year to raise than next year. And so you probably want to try to get to 25 before you have to raise again, right? So there's like, it changes what you do, but it doesn't fundamentally change whether or not startups, you know, need to innovate to succeed long-term and, and our approach to it, which is just keep investing in startups. And over 10 years, um, you know, the, the, the sort of innovation is what will carry you anyway. So sort of tune the rest of it out. It's, it's sort of noise. It's like, um, I don't know, it's like intellectual junk food. It's like the equivalent of like, like really smart people who studied math and economics and computer science like to listen to Larry Summers the way that like, you know, they make fun of people for listening to like, you know, to watching like the Kardashians or something. It's just like, it's like the same thing over and over and over every week. And you're like, really, why am I just like listening to the same thing over and over and over every week? So uh, we tend to ignore it. Now on specifics, it goes back to those three areas. Like I still think Layer ones, super interesting. I think like the design space is is underexplored still. I think there's going to be some sort of power law there in terms of who wins. Um, I don't think it's going to be winner take all. I don't think it should be winner take all. If we go back to sort of the philosophical underpinnings here, part of what we want to create are systems that are much more resilient. And so I think if we end up with only EVM systems, that's not great. Like I think that that creates a lot of of you know uh, choke points. Like creates a lot of places where things could fall apart. There are a lot of sort of surface areas for attack there that that everybody's potentially compromised. Um, not to mention it, it, it inhibits innovation, right? Like I think technical constraints, you know, the way that Solana has approached it or the way that SWE or Aptos have approached it or the Cosmos approach, like these open up the design surface area for application developers to explore and say, oh, actually over here, I could do it this way. And that produces a totally different user experience. So I still think the layer ones are early L2s, all this infrastructure. So things like Eigenlayer, um, Espresso for decentralized sequencers, like there's just a ton of infrastructure to build to make these things usable at scale. Um, that I think is pretty fascinating. We spent a lot of time on that stuff. I think we're starting to get into a world where some of the decentralized computation pieces are going to be really interesting. So can I just buy GPU time somewhere? Can I buy file storage somewhere? Can I, 
Um, you know, how do I do that? And I think this is where AI and crypto will, will converge. There will be a couple of surface areas, but I think this is one of them. And it goes back to this idea that AI can't KYC anywhere. It doesn't have a social security number or a TIN. And so if the AI wants to buy resources, it has to do it on these decentralized systems using decentralized currencies because uh, it can't get a bank account either. Um, so I think that's super interesting. Continue to think DeFi is interesting because I think ultimately what we're creating is this third space um, for you know people to do transactions and businesses to to be able to transact with each other and settle transactions, but do it in a way that that, that a singular government can't just shut you off. Um, and so I think we're going to basically recreate all of the financial instruments of the world inside inside the DeFi ecosystem. And to Hasib's point, I think they will have a different path. So you know we'll start with okay, well maybe instead of U.S. Treasuries as the base rate, um, maybe it's ETH staking. And what are the consequences of that? Right. And so you're starting to see things like interest rate swap protocols where some people need like reliable interest rates and some people are willing to to sort of, you know, take the variable and like the amount of staking um, that's happening changes the rate. And so people are, are sort of saying, OK, well, I'll, I think there's, you know, that's going to go down or up. And so I'll, I'll lock in a rate now. Um, or, you know, we um, there's a really interesting um, protocol that um, we're, we're seed investors in that um, just announced called Hourglass. And they're taking this idea of time-locked tokens and allowing protocols to, to introduce that as a, as a primitive into their protocol. I think this is fascinating. This is something that people on the equities markets have talked about for a long time, literally decades. People have been talking about, hey, look, if I, if I buy shares in a company, if I'm Warren Buffett, I buy shares and I don't ever want to sell them, shouldn't I have more say over how the company runs than, rather than some activist investor who's going to come in and dump the shares in six months because they're trying to like make the shares pump? Like, Why do we each get one vote? We can actually do that in crypto now, right? We can actually say, hey, look, if you're willing to commit on chain to locking these things up, maybe you get more governance power or maybe you get preferential economic terms of some sort, right? Like, and we can actually do those kinds of experiments on chain now. Um, so I think DeFi continues to be super, super interesting. And then, you know, the NFT side of it, I think, is um, ultimately how this stuff is going to go really, really mainstream, like from a consumer perspective. Um, and that, by the way, that's not just me saying that. Like, you can go back to, I think it's Hal Finney in the early 90s uh, on the cypherpunk forums was talking about, you know, because they've been talking about digital cash and e-cash and, and these kinds of things for, you know, the cypherpunks were talking about these things in, in the early 90s. And um, yeah, if I, I think it was, I think it was Hal Finney, made a comment along the lines of, hey, you know, I realized most people don't really understand money as a technology. It's just too abstract. It's like not a thing that people can really get their heads around very easily unless they really think about it. But you know what they do understand is baseball cards. And so maybe if you think about these things, the way this stuff is really going to go mainstream is through something like baseball cards, because it's sort of like a really similar tech, but people kind of already have an analogy for that, that they can kind of get their heads around much more easily. And I think that's actually correct. I think, you know, games and collectibles and luxury goods are a thing that everybody understands. Literally, the richest man in the world runs LVMH and they traffic in luxury. Uh, and so I think that's how this stuff will go really mainstream um, and the platforms that enable that. And so, I mean, you look at things like ordinals. And you're like, it's, it's just so like amazing. And, and it's like, even in a bear market, you can look at the, the traction on something like ordinals or NFTs and, and how active that space is. And you can see that there's something happening there. Um, so yeah, those are, those are still the three categories that we think about. Um, and I think it's just, you know, infrastructure, DeFi is sort of this new space. And like, what is that? What is it? What is an economy worth? What is a digital economy worth that, you know, could be as mm -hmm. big as the United States? And what are all the pieces that need to exist for that to happen? And um, NFTs, essentially, is property rights and luxury goods and collectibles and games, mm. I think is also going to be huge. Hasib, what does uh, Avitro get right and what does uh, Avitro get wrong here? Boom. Disagree um, with me. He, well, okay. Uh, it, was, it was a little, it was fast moving. So there were a lot of different pieces that uh, it's hard for me to touch on all of them. 
I'll reflect on the question about, okay, I'll, I'll start from the beginning where we're talking about the kind of pace of investment and, and as an investor looking at this market and as an entrepreneur thinking about raising money in this market, how should you be thinking about things? Uh, there's a lot of capital that's still kind of locked up for crypto, right? So there were all these mega funds that were raised a year and a half ago. And a lot of them are sitting on tons of dry powder, including me, including Avitral, including you know all the big guys. There's still a lot of money out there. Uh, but people are not deploying at the same pace that they were last year for a couple of reasons. One is just that a lot of people got punched in the face and are trying to recalibrate of what exactly they should be doing and how they should be doing it. Uh, second, there are some people who are apparently pivoting into AI, so that maybe is uh, some capital flight out of crypto. Uh, and, then, and then third is just that um, I think people are just not seeing things that are uh, galvanizing them in the same way. Right? People, people are not, they're not in the same kind of up-only mentality that they were uh, a year and a half ago. And there, there's more of a sense around capital preservation of like, hey, I, I want to make sure that I survive and get through to the next you know, bull market, the next promised land when I, I know that there's going to be um, a strong narrative that I can get my money behind that you know, I'm not going to be embarrassed by uh, backing the wrong thing or, or putting money in the wrong time. So I think there's a lot of risk aversion right now among investors generally. And that and that and that does mean that I think it's a it's not an easy time to fundraise, even though there is a lot of capital that's earmarked for the space. That capital is probably going to get dribbled out more slowly than it is uh, looking in years prior for the same same amount of money. Hmm. That said, you know, as an investor, to me that actually makes me quite bullish on investing because ultimately the the thing that decides the return on on investment there's two things that decide the return on investment. One is the growth of the underlying asset class that you're investing into. And then second is the supply and demand of capital itself. So you want a high growth rate and not much capital. That's the best situation, right? Second best is having a high growth rate and a lot of capital. If there's a low growth rate, there's almost no way to make money. It doesn't matter how much capital there is or isn't. It's very, very difficult to make money in an asset that just grows too slowly. There's just not enough to do there. And of course, if it's growing negatively and you're investing in something that's fundamentally going to fail, it doesn't matter how much or little capital there is. Everybody who invests in it is going to be burning money. And so to me, you know, the way I see crypto, I, th I, I see it as a high growth area that now the amount of capital that's pursuing the space has, has uh, dramatically shrunk. And so I, uh, to, to me, this is now a time as an investor that I want to be aggressive and I want to be putting money to work. Again, I'm not going to endorse any particular asset or say you should buy this or buy that. Mm -hmm. But the, the concept, I think, is one that everybody can recognize, right? All these big guys who are allocating money into crypto, whether it's the big institutions, whether it's the Tigers, the SoftBanks, the KOTUs, all these guys are backing off now. All the big funds are slowing down now. All the stuff that we were talking about, this frenzy of investing into crypto, it stopped. The music is off. Now it's like everybody's oh. standing around a party thinking about, man, maybe I should go home. Maybe I should go to the AI party across the street. Um, to me, that's the that's the the, the best. They're giving out party. free pizza in those parties. You're not getting. Free yeah, that's pizza. what I hear. That's <laughs> what I hear. Yeah, exactly. Good. I, so I, I don't, I, I don't I, personally I, eat pizza, but uh, you know, I, uh, the, the, I have a the, mental image just... of Hasib at a party, like relishing in the awkwardness of like the lights coming on at oh, the end of the day, and just like standing it's there and favorite. just being like, "Oh, oh I love yes, this. Finally. This is my favorite. This is my favorite finally, time of the night." It was so loud, I could barely hear anything. Yeah, there has been a lot of capital deployed over the last two years. Do you think that some of these projects ever recover to those valuations, which were anchored on thin air, this ample liquidity? Um, you know, of course, we saw 2017 as an example. A lot of projects did kind of see this arc of boom, bust, and then recovery, and and then some, like, kind of like Len, for instance, or some of the DeFi kind of old, like mm -hmm. old timers. 
Is that going to be the case this time? Or are you more excited about new primitives, new projects that are raising from scratch and don't have this kind of overhead uh, of, of anchoring to evaluation that might not ever, they might not ever recover from? Oh, I think the, the analogy to 2017 is apt. Because in 2017, what you saw was that a lot of the most high-flying things, like obviously Ethereum, and then you know things like uh, uh, the you know the, the ICOs that 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 were circulating at that time, a lot of them just absolutely got killed, and in a way that they were never going to come back. Like IOTA has never gotten back. Um, you know some of the some of the stuff that was there, you know Ryblox, Nano, all that kind of stuff, it's just dead. It just never came back. Um, but then there are other things that crested even higher than their previous highs, right? That, obviously, that was true of Ethereum. It's true of Zcash. It's true of, you know, a lot of stuff from that generation that turned out that, like, yeah, they were actually going out and solving real problems and, and building important technology. And there was a lot of speculation going on at that time. But that speculation turned out to be warranted in the same way that, you know, Amazon in the dot-com bubble was one of the most speculative assets in the entire stock market. Turned out that they were right, that this thing was going to end up becoming a trillion-dollar-plus company. Um, so they were right to be speculating on it because if you'd held Amazon from the high of the, the dot-com bubble, you would have had a fantastic IRR holding it until today. And so the, the same thing I think is true is that a lot of the stuff that, you know, there are a lot of things that are now down 90% plus from the highs of the market. And most of those things are never going to recover. And they're going to either just, you know, die on the vine basically, or they're going to, you know, uh, get to a very small fraction of the, the, the market or the, the valuation that they, they previously were at, there are some things that are going to blow past what we saw of the highs of the previous market. But it's, it's not going to be most of them. It's going to be a, a very small fraction of them that are going to turn out to have justified those valuations and exceeded them. Yeah. I, I would add, um, you know, I think I don't worry. It's interesting. I don't worry about things coming back because I think the fundamental utility of these things is so significant and that's what ultimately matters. Um, and I do think most of the things that raised at crazy valuations um, did not have enough fundamental utility to justify those valuations. So like, I think both statements can be true. For what it's worth, mm -hmm. the thing I worry about is that things will come back too quickly. And what has happened over the last two to four years in particular, kind of this last cycle, is that we laid down a lot of the rails for money to flow much more effectively. So we now have wallets that work, we have MPC solutions, all these institutions know about crypto. Um, you look at a company like Bitwise and they just are chalking up win after win in terms of wealth managers, understanding crypto and index funds and wanting to get them plugged into their like systems as so the capital is not flowing yet, but all the pipes are there now for all the money and the users to flow. And I worry that if the market comes back too quickly, we might poison the well. So in a bizarre way, I actually hope things come back more slowly. Like I would rather us have an up cycle in like 2027 than in 2025. Because I think that gives time for the builders to put their heads down and like build stuff. Um, and like, so you are have enough runway though. But he was not wrong. You are a masochist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was gonna um, say that. I, I think if it's 2027, we might just lose too many people. 2027, man. I, mean, that, uh, 2027, I know what you're saying here. Sure that's a while. You don't even have that kind of runway, though. Talent, man. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think the. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people will not have that runway. I mean, that's what happened between like 2000 and 2003, right? If you got to like 2004, you won. Amazon got to yeah. 2004. And I mean, I think going. Amazon just IPO'd Google. right barely and had it not IPO'd. It barely got it. Bust. That's right. You know, well, um, where in that cycle of startups running out of uh, runway are we? Like, are we, have we seen the worst of it? Is it six months? Is no. there like a, a time when ever, I'm assuming a, everyone yeah. raised 
like what November fall of 2021 so 18 yeah. to 24 months after that you would have to assume that in the next six months it's going to start to get exactly. really ugly it's going to start it's going to start hitting yeah, I think you're going to start to seeing people do layoffs. I think you start seeing people pivot, people trying to sell their companies. And that double yeah. whammy I think is going to hit is like startups hitting last six to 12 months of their runway and realizing that they can't support a 10-person team anymore and they need to get to three people. And so there's going to be a wave of that. And you know, upstream, like in, in our business, um, the LPs are looking around and they're like, well, do I want to put more money into crypto? Is now the time to be putting in? And the smart ones are saying, hell yeah, like things were down 90%. This is the time you double down. But there's a lot of people that that are, you know, even up up the food chain in the capital markets are driven by FOMO. And that's just the reality of how money works, right? And so there are gonna be some people that pull back. And so um, you know, I think for for firms like, you know, the top five, seven, eight firms in crypto, right? Uh, you know, Electric, Dragonfly, Paradigm, uh, Andreessen, like I don't think there's gonna be any issues because the capital bases are really strong, the LPs are committed, they knew what they're getting into, yada yada. But what it does is it takes out the next 50. Right, it takes out the next group of, of capital, and so downstream too. It's it's not just that startups start to run out of money, you know, this fall or, or next year. It's well, mm. who do they go to to get that next round? And is somebody willing to do it at that valuation? And or do they have to do a massive down round? Or you know, where is that capital going to come from? Um, mm. And so I think that double whammy is going to hit in the next six to nine months. Another thing that um, makes us difficult in crypto is that we have all these all these norms that are, I think are, are we're very path dependent. They just kind of arose the way they did mm. of like the team should really only have like 20% of the token supply, right? This is kind of a norm that we've arrived at after just, I don't know, people copying each other effectively. And uh, 50% has to go to the community and this much can go to the investors and whatever. And um, that makes it very, very difficult to make the math work for down rounds for a lot of these um, uh, protocols, right? Yeah. Because at a certain point, it's just like, okay, if I, if I need to raise $2 million to pay my team and nobody's willing to give me more than you know, $20 million valuation, uh, what do you do? Where do I fit that in the token supply? Well, all of a sudden, I have you know twenty five percent for the community or something, and like the decentralization math stops working. So there, there are I think some real constraints that we're going to have to be revisiting, because you know if you, in in earlier markets it didn't work this way. This was really kind of a twenty twenty um, uh, uh, set of norms that were that were created when the bull market really kicked off, and everybody could basically do it. Everybody could set aside half the token supply for the community and have you know this much for investors, this much for team, and blah blah blah. Um, that's going to come under challenge where you're just going to be like, look, we, we have to just start bumping up these numbers because otherwise we don't have any money. We can't build anything. We can't, you know, we can't. Uh, well, recruit investors. I, I actually, I think what will happen is a bunch of people will just shut down. I think, I think you'll just see ghost protocols. I think you'll think you see things abandoned. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly going to happen too. Yeah. And I mean, people, there's well, a, lot, people will a reboot. lot of folks. They'll have to. There's a lot of folks right now that are six to 24 months away from shutdown. Yeah. I think that's a vast they probably shut down. I'd say they probably 90%. should shut down today. Because there's no product market fit and there's just no line of sight. Steve, is it no the early market. stage companies? Is it Series A running out of money, or do you have like the some Series C, Series D company? I'm talking about everybody. everybody. I'm talking yeah. about everybody. Series B, Series yeah. C, everybody is somewhere yeah. in six to twenty-four months. Yeah. Would okay, you, so let's um, say you're a series. Go, go ahead, Santi. Well, I was going to ask the question: like, yeah. would you say that in in this environment, there's an opportunity for the more capitalized liquid protocol? Say you're like safe, for instance. Mm -hmm. It has the opportunity to really build an ecosystem on top of this multi-sig kind of thing that is working fairly well. It bodes well for non-custodial, you know, non yada, yada, yada. They could be in a position to really go out there and acquire some of these teams or someone like a uh, maker or synthetics or I don't know, some of the more well-capitalized like, that have a liquid currency. Would you be looking at perhaps investing in, in those now ecosystems versus going out and trying to pick one particular startup 
Uh, you know what I mean? It's sort of the relative yeah. play or like at what point do you look more at the public markets that are fairly depressed yeah. mm-hmm. versus yeah. doing the incremental early stage, you know, million totally. dollar check? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great thought. It's something we talk about a lot. And, and there are a couple of flavors to that, right? So one is back to this idea in, in this world of, well, it's not that I even have to necessarily put money towards an early stage startup. It's like, maybe I should just buy Bitcoin and ETH, right? If like from a risk reward perspective, you think those things have great return and they're through the regulatory gauntlet and I have full liquidity on them. And, and I think that's a thing that a lot of startups don't realize is that you're not competing against just, you know, other other startups. It's actually the, the base rate of return is actually Bitcoin and ETH. And that's actually very hard because those are those have huge, you know, outcome potential. So um, that's one observation. Two is, you know, you can't really predict when a great founder is going to show up as an early stage investor. So to some degree, it's like, hey, somebody showed up and they have this brilliant idea and I should probably just give them money because I can't give them money later. And so part of the part of the calculus for us always is like, when are people showing up? And right now, the number of people coming in has definitely gone down because all the grifters went to AI. But I think the number of high quality people is really great. Um, and so, you know, we kind of have to pay more attention to the founders that are that are coming in right now because there's some other reason that they're coming in. They're philosophically motivated. They have a technical insight. There's some reason they're coming in. And so I think it's a really exciting time to do, in, to do the early stage stuff. But it turns out by virtue of them being so early stage, you're often talking like two, four, six million dollar kinds of raises. You're not talking 20, 30, 40 million dollar mm-hmm. kind of raises. And so Santi, to your point, I think the really interesting place right now is actually on the token side because there are so many things that have launched that are pretty decentralized. We're actually doing this analysis right now internally of how decentralized are some of these things relative to Ethereum in 2018 when Hinman said uh, Ethereum is not a security. And actually, when you look at some of these metrics, like some of these things like Solana and Cosmos actually are like pretty decentralized relative to ETH 2018. Now, it depends on which metrics you look at and how you slice it and stuff. But you look at those things and you're like, oh, that's interesting, actually. And like they work like Cosmos, you know, like Tenderman SDK works. People build stuff on it. Like there's real users. There's USDC. You look at that and you're like, wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, but, you know, because of the way the market dynamics work, those those things have really gotten beaten up. That's not you, no advice on buying mm-hmm. Cosmos. We don't hold any atoms. So I'm not like trying to show anything. Like I actually think there's some serious issues there with that ecosystem and the token. Yeah. But um, the point being, like, it's interesting that there are these pockets where there's real technical development, that the use cases are real. People are like thousands of developers are building, um, but they've gotten kind of beaten up. The, the way we always describe it in sort of an ETH context, since that's um, it's commodity, is we're kind of at like 2017 prices. If you go back, there's this moment, you know, ETH is hovering on 1400, except all of the stuff that was vaporware in 2017 is real now. Like L2s exist. We moved to proof of stake. Um, like ZK stuff is a thousand X more performant USDC, you know, there's stable coins, like DeFi works, there's lending protocol, like everything that was theoretical in 2017 is actually real now, but like the price, but the thing costs the same amount. And that's, that to me is like a perfect example of what you're talking about. If you were buying, if you were excited about ETH back then and buying at 1400, then it's massively to your point. You should love it. There's no reason why you shouldn't be allocating. You should love it at 1500, five years later when all the stuff that was vaporware is actually real. And this this also speaks, sorry for the rant, but this this speaks also to this thing we always talk about, which is there's this recurring human pattern that I think AI is going to go through too, which is that humans really overestimate what's possible in two years and really underestimate what's possible in 10 years. This is that sort of like, the reason for that is that exponential growth thing. And so literally it's all the stuff in 2018 that everybody's like, oh, like this is, you know, we're going to have decentralized whatever. 
in two years and none of it happened. So the whole thing crashed out and the technologists just toned, tuned all that out and they just kept building. And we're now about five years after the ICO boom. And so in my opinion, we're like roughly on track, like about halfway into that 10 year cycle, you'd expect the tech is now real. And so that's this, mm-hmm. like the next five years now are about how do we get these things into the hands of users and, and scale them up like crazy. Um, and so I think we're actually roughly on track for a lot of that stuff from 2018. It's like, I think we're going to, I think people will sit up in 2017, 2027, 2028 and look around and say, holy crap, a lot of that stuff that people are talking about in the ICO boom, it actually happened. Mm-hmm. It's funny to your point around non-linearity. I think more people increasingly, there's two trends. One, I think technology is moving faster. You have like this, everyone's more connected now. Technology moves faster, especially in open source context. On the other hand, people are more impatient. Like the yep. average holding of stocks has gone from like yeah. a year. It keeps going down. Yeah. So Hasib, I want to ask you first, like what do you, what is it that you think that the crypto market is getting wrong or has gotten wrong where you've been fairly contrarian or are being contrarian right now and are willing to kind of hold that line? A lot of things. Uh, I mean, one of the most obvious ones from this previous cycle was play to earn. Um, mm. Play to earn was kind of the most obvious big fuck up in terms of narrative that we had as an industry that, um, you know, there, there are certain people who are pushing it more than others. Um, but I, I think I was pretty public in saying that play to earn was nonsense and that it was, it was basically doomed in bad economics turned out to be correct is that, yeah, paying people in the third world to play a game is not value creating it's value destructive. And in retrospect, like, yeah, nothing that was play to earn seems to really have legs and have, uh, intrinsic sustainability. And these games aren't good, which is the main thing that you care about for games. Like if you sort of lose sight of the, the main thing you're trying to do, which is entertainment. If these things are not entertaining, something is very deeply wrong. And right now that's kind of the state that we have with crypto games. That there, there are a few that are okay, um, but most of them are awful. Most of them are basically financial engineering. And financial engineering, when, when you're calling a financial, a financial instrument, a game, something has gone wrong, right? You've missed the plot somehow. Like you've, you've, gone, you've gone too deep. Um, so that, that's one area that I think, uh, that's not to say that I'm, I'm bearish on the whole on crypto gaming. I think that crypto gaming is going to be an interesting and fertile area. I, I'm, I reserve judgment about how large it's going to be uh, because I think it, it suits certain kinds of games better than others. And I don't think it's the case that every single game is going to be a crypto powered game because a lot of things that are fun are not financial in nature at all. Um, but uh, clearly play to earn was the wrong path to go down. And I think we, we ended up looking very stupid on a very large stage because of our, um, the industry's embrace of play to earn as a, as a, an important, uh, mechanic to defend. I think the Dow craziness hmm. ended up looking really bad in retrospect, uh, of this idea, the story that like, Oh, everything's going to be a Dow. Normal people are going to participate in Dow's and Dow's are the best structure for everything. Uh, I think in retrospect now people, that view has been tempered quite a lot of like, Hey, Dow's have problems. Uh, governance is kind of a mess. We don't really know how to do any of this. Um, this bit, we basically just gave lots and lots of money to children and told them, Hey, I'm sure this will all be fine. Like you guys figure this out. Uh, and we didn't, we did a terrible job, uh, with all these DAOs. Uh, and so that's a place I think where I, I, I don't think I was quite as outspoken on DAOs, although I've, I've talked a lot of shit about DAOs in the past, but I've been, Oh, you know, I think they're going to be important and they're clearly going somewhere and people care about these things. Um, but the DAO mania in retrospect was, you know, very, very off and made us look very foolish for endorsing this view of the world. Um, those I think are the, are the big, are the big ones I can think of that crypto really got wrong. Um, but crypto also got a lot of stuff, right? I think this, the, the idea that more and more value was going to be tokenized and brought on chain and that 
it is actually more efficient to have these things in a decentralized network rather than in the traditional financial system. That turned out to be right. And I think it's been vindicated by the 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 really incredibly efficient system that we've built that's garnered a lot of sympathy. It's why we've got central banks LARPing as blockchains because they see, wow, the, what you guys have built is so much better and more streamlined and more efficient than what we've built over the last 75 years that we'd love to borrow some of these concepts and use them in the systems that we already have. Same reason why you've got all these financial services companies trying to incorporate blockchain technology into traditional uh, financial services, even in, in governments, trying to trying to find ways that they can shoehorn blockchain into uh, various services at the same time. So I I, um, I think it's it's definitely a mixed record. And it's true of every cycle, right? In the, in the 2017 bull market, we had this whole thing about ICOs where everybody in the crypto industry, myself included, was talking about ICOs are going to decentralize capital formation. And this is the perfect, like, why are there all these laws around disclosures, investing, and all this, you know, stupid stuff you boomers do? It turns out we learned a good lesson of why these things are important. It's like, yeah, vesting matters. It's really important that we have vesting. And, you know, a, a lot of these things around capital formation are there for a reason because when people lose trust in the legitimacy of capital markets and they're like, oh, if I put money in this ICO, I don't know if I'm ever going to see it again. And these guys are going to build what they say they're going to build. Um, and what's going to happen to them if they don't, the answer is nothing. Um, that's, a, that's a shitty market structure. Turns out it sucks. There are some markets that do need um, to resolve information asymmetries and do need strong commitment mechanisms in order for the, the capital markets to be strong. And we didn't have that. And we, don't, we didn't have a good solution for it. Um, we're building those over time, but without having those there, um, you end up looking stupid and you end up losing credibility. So I think the, the, the industry, it's kind of the same thing as the internet, right? The internet got a lot of stuff wrong in the early days um, and gradually figured out like, hey, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do all the stuff over plain text because randos can just you know, sit in a coffee shop and, and figure out everything you're doing and, and uh, steal your accounts. And we learned, ah, okay, over time, you figure out some best practices, you figure out what you should do and you shouldn't do, and you mess a lot of stuff up and you end up looking really stupid along the way. But over time, you iterate your way into best practices. And I feel like that's what crypto has done over the yeah. last couple of years. Guys, you got, you you both use a lot of uh, anecdotes from 20 years ago, from like, you know, early, early days of the web, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, the one, like, you know, Hasib, you brought up Microsoft and Tam and someone brought up Amazon. Um the one difference between then and now is that the uh, value accrual mechanism, like how these things will actually capture the value, is hamstrung by regulators right now. And you see it with, I like really I'm thinking about the, the fee switch and within the fee switch conversation, I'm thinking about Uniswap. So I'm curious how you guys think about these protocols capturing value. I think there's a couple questions here. Like, should they be doing, there's like a user acquisition conversation about like, and like just a capital allocation conversation about like, should they be doing it right now? And then there's the second conversation about, well, if they decide they should do it from a business perspective, should they do it from a legal perspective? So I don't know who wants to take that one first, but I'm curious how you both think about it. Well, we're, we're not investors in Uniswap, but I'll, I'll take a shot at it because I think Uniswap sure. is the most instructive example of this. The, the Uniswap story is one where it's, it's always going to be the case that business models and strategic decisions are bounded by uh, the law and by regulations, right? In a state of nature, you might prefer it that Uniswap had the fee switch on from the very beginning, or at least had the ability to modulate the fee in response to, you know, maximizing revenue or maximizing market share or whatever it is they're trying to maximize. Uh, right now, you can't, you can't do that for a few reasons. One is that people are scared. Uh, they're scared that if, if we turn this thing on, the SEC has made very clear that this thing is going to be security, that's going to harm the adoption of this, of this product, it's going to harm the adoption of the token, blah, 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 blah. You know, a lot of the US, uh, a lot of the holders of Uniswap token are Americans, and they'll have to 
potentially disgorge the token if it's it's deemed to be a security. There, there, there are a lot of things in the real world that are affecting the uh, kind of economically optimal choice for how Uniswap ought to be governed and how it ought to operate as, as, an, as a decentralized exchange. That said, at the end of the day, there is really only one fundamental way that these things are valuable, is that they create more value than they pay in costs. If that doesn't happen, this thing cannot be valuable. Right, um, and that difference is a very clear and objective measure of the value that something is creating. Now, it doesn't necessarily capture all that value. How you capture that value is, there, you know, there are a few different ways to do it. And the most obvious way that you know SushiSwap kind of showed that there was a path toward that, and, and Curve also does the same thing. And then both of them have uh, take fees on the underlying market. Uniswap now sees, ah, okay, there's a fee market. Uh, there's there's a fee model that's that's very easy to understand. These other exchanges do it. Um, and we can al almost do like a sensitivity analysis and see when you increase the fees, what does that do to trading volume? What does that do to market share? And how should we think about, you know, the point that maximizes revenue for the protocol? Now, the other side of it is that Uniswap is also saying like, look, we're, it's super early. Like, we're in the very, very, very beginning of DeFi. This stuff is going to exist for, you know, decades into the future. So in the same way that, you know, Amazon in the early days didn't worry about profit margin because they're like, look, we're, you guys don't understand. This thing is going to be so big. E-commerce is going to eat everything. So whether or not we have profit now in 2005 or 2007 or 2010 just doesn't matter given how big the TAM is that we're going after. And a lot of people doubted Amazon. They thought that was a ridiculous claim to make. Um, they turned out Amazon was right, that it was a trillion dollar plus market and they proved it and now they are extracting that revenue at the end of that cycle. Um, Uniswap is making fundamentally, you, you could argue, Uniswap is making fundamentally the same argument that you guys don't realize how big this TAM is. And for us to start extracting right now is stupid. We should be growing the pie as big as we can because we, you know, Uniswap is the market. Uniswap is DeFi. Almost all the volume, the trading volume going on chain is Uniswap. So in the same way that Amazon is basically saying, look, our job is just to increase the, the, the market of e-commerce. Yeah, but that there's a whole, but there's, but there's a whole generation, there's a whole generation of startups that was built on the, that thesis was in their pitch deck, right? Like Amazon didn't make any money. We're not going to make any money for a decade. Therefore, like, let, give, just give us a bunch of money. We'll get profitable eventually. There's a whole generation of startups that that was the idea and it didn't really work out. We're seeing as we're on the other side of this VC, I like. Well, the, well the, the environment changed. Yeah, right. we have higher interest rates now. <clears throat> but right. I think the point Hasib, you're making is, <clears throat> sure, like startups should reinvest in growth to the extent there is and it makes sense and there are opportunities now uniswap has rolled out and made some acquisitions right of like what is it they acquired this nft kind of marketplace um the question is like still how many people are actually showing up to to vote on where that capital gets mm -hmm. allocated and do you believe to your point on DAOs? do you actually believe that who's going to make that decision is it uniswap labs is it the uniswap holders now of course if there then it becomes a question you know, there is value actually in holding uni tokens because you can allocate a huge like treasure chest of, of capital. Forget about VCs. I mean, these guys are going to be the biggest investors in the space because <laughs> they have so much capital, right, to allocate. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I still am not sure where I stand in terms of can these people be good stewards of capital and can they allocate it correctly or should they just give it back to token holders to do whatever the hell they want with it? For, for what it's well, worth, so I think it's tough to be a good steward to, for all the reasons that you mentioned. Like, I think it's not a decision by committee situation. And so you have to create structures that 
allow for well-informed people to make those decisions. I mean, it's kind of, um, for, for the, for the record and let the record state, I was always very pro vesting. I was always very pro disclosure. I have like tweets. You can, go, you can go back to like 2017 or 2018. And I was making tweets about how we're just reinventing the capital markets and people are going to figure out that like vesting structures for teams and founders are, are like a necessary thing and yada, yada. And I think one of the things that, um, capital markets and that democracy has figured out is that like direct democracy is not tenable. Like you just, you end up with worse mm -hmm. outcomes what you need is some well-informed group of people that are elected by that group of people, whether it's a, you know, a board of directors or, you know, some sort of bicameral legislative body with an executive branch, yada, yada. And that's how stuff can actually get done because there are, there are specialists that understand these things. Um, I suspect we will reinvent those things on chain and we'll just say, look, this group of four or 10 people really understands how to deploy capital and maximize that value. And we're going to elect those people. And then I don't have to think about it. Uh, I suspect is how this will ultimately need to go. Um, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a thread I think Hasib was pulling on, which I think he sort of said, but I, I don't know if he exactly said, uh, that I think you just touched on too, Santi is like, is the value in these tokens ultimately going to be because you control some large pool of capital and can direct that capital around, or is the value going to be in the cash flow that comes out of the thing? And I tend to be in the latter camp. Like, I think at the end of the day, assets are valuable because of the cash flow that they can produce. Like all assets ultimately boil down to some sort of, you know, cash flow, discounted cash flow rate with, you know, the base rate of inflation. And, uh, and I think that's where these things have to go, um, uh, ultimately. And so even if Uniswap ends up being a giant pile of capital or liquidity gun that you can point around, I think downstream of that, then there is something that will produce cash flow, and that thing will also be very, very valuable. Um, and I think what people will really be doing is using this as a means to an end in that case. And, and to the original question, like, I think the statement around like tokens value capture, I think is actually a US centric question. Like I think the rest of the world is going to figure this out before the US because the rest of the world has in many cases been shut out of the US capital markets. Like if you're a retail person in Southeast Asia, can you buy Tesla or Apple stock? Have you, you know, has most of the world been able to invest in private companies where if you look for the last 15 years, post 2008, arguably post 2001 or post, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, have people been able to participate in the private markets where all the wealth generation has really happened um, short of FANG stocks, you know, for the last 10 years. Um, and so I think there's actually a, a huge demand in the world, uh, especially XUS, to be able to have access to financial opportunities that they've been blocked out of. And that's actually most of the world. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I suspect most of the world and, and those people in those markets, both the elected officials, but the, but the sort of the retail markets there, understand this viscerally and they understand the opportunity of this viscerally as a new thing. And it's hard for income. It's got, kind of goes back to the incumbent question too. Like the United States is the incumbent here, you know, and we kind of, we kind of got this right with the telco act of 96. If anybody wants to go back and read that, it's like probably one of the most important things that happened over the last 30 years that, that like few people in tech actually understand. It's like the internet would not be the internet without the telco act of 96, um, which laid the rules for things like, Hey, Platforms are not liable for what the users of the platform say on the platform, like as long as you take it down. Um, and those rules of the road, like unlocked the internet and made the internet what it is today in many ways and, and actually essentially cemented US dominance of the internet. And I think the rest of the world kind of understood that lesson because it's been hanging over them since 1996. And they look back, the EU looks back at that, Japan looks back at that, Korea looks back at that, Singapore looks back at that, the Gulf states look back at that and they're like, oh, look at where we are today. And it's all American companies. 
Like, do we want to be in that place again? Or is this an opportunity for us to not have that happen? And, and so I think that's why the rest of the world is getting this. So I suspect what's going to happen is the, the EU with Mika, with, you know, the Gulf states like Dubai opening up free zones, Singapore, like you just look at the way people are Hong Kong, like doing a 180, mm -hmm. like everybody gets this um, in a way that I think the US doesn't. And I think it's sort of a classic innovators dilemma situation. Um, I hope yeah. the U.S. figures it out, but I suspect everybody else is going to figure out tokens as cash flow is a thing. It's a new financial instrument. We need to regulate it. We need to have disclosures. But this is an awesome opportunity for economic empowerment for people who have been left out historically. Um, and I think a lot of other places that have been left out, those governments are going to seize that opportunity. Yeah, I, I wish in many ways, like we can get to clarity with all of these regulatory actions to finally be able to op reopen the design space in a more trend, like open yeah. way because i think that will really get us back to spending you know because we've been dancing around this we call them governance tokens but the reality is there is underlying value and cash that is being generated by these protocols in a very meaningful way yeah. like these things are highly more efficient than centralized players yeah let's uh yeah it's, it's a huge it's a huge it's a huge waste and it's a huge missed opportunity too because it's like i i think it's interesting because you know at least in the U.S., kind of the on the right, these things have been picked up because they they do sort of embody some of these more open free market kinds of ideas, right? Like let let the technology be more efficient and create more value and and global markets and yada yada. Um, and I just it, it makes me a little sad because like that's all true, but it's also the case that like the origins of this stuff are wait a second, the legacy system is broken. Like the banks keep screwing us. Like the legacy financial system. Like where do these guys make money? they make it off the backs of poor people. Like they find the crap out of those people. You know, I'm not getting charged for wires. I call Schwab and I do whatever I want. And like, they refund me those fees. And, um, you know, it's like, the, these are very exploitive institutions. Like if you look at how much money have these guys been fi fined over the last 15 years, the big banks of the world, it's hundreds of billions of dollars in fines. Um, and, and that was kind of the idea here. And we kind of have like lost the plot a little bit in that. It's like, we're just sort of arguing over these technicalities when it's like, hey, look, there's like, you know, 100 million poor people getting screwed every year in the United States by these fees. And like we have, a, we can actually solve this problem. Like we can move money around for way faster, way cheaper on your phone. And you don't have to have a bank in your local area that is extractive, or you don't have to go to like the check cashing place, or you don't have to take a payday loan against your car. Like the money can show up instantly and you can send money to your family overseas. And like all of these problems, like technically we can solve now. Um, and so it's just, it's just sort of sad. Right. And it's, it's, yeah. but I think that's why the rest of the world gets it. Cause they don't have some of these legacy institutions standing in the way. Um, they don't, they don't have the innovators dilemma problem actually. So anyway, Absolutely. I think it'll happen. I think it'll happen globally. And then I think the, to be clear, I think the U S will figure it out. There's a, yeah. there's, uh, I think it's a Churchill quote. That's something along the lines of you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they do all the other things, basically. Uh, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not as eloquent as Churchill, but mm -hmm. like, I think the American government will eventually do the right thing here but it's not. I think the rest of the yeah. world will figure it out first and then the, the Americans' hands will be forced. Well, I know you guys got to jump. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. I think you guys are the two, one of the two more favorite guests on, on the pod. We, we'd love to continue this conversation soon around later. Talk about catalysts, what you guys are looking for in the next cycle and, and kind of there's a lot that is, is happening in the crypto space right now. So, you know, you guys are welcome anytime. So let's definitely schedule Easy. something in the books because uh, I think the audience really love it. Yeah. So there's a, there's really a whole conversation around like monolithic versus modular that yeah, yeah. I was, oh, I was okay. about to yeah. ask yeah. you guys, but I was like, that's a whole, we didn't even get to any of that. Yeah, Two yeah, hour long conversation here. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I would love to have that conversation. This is part yeah. one well, yeah. uh, of, of many. So uh, yeah. guys, 
a, a I, pleasure I, having you on. By the way, I think Hasib and I will disagree a lot on monolithic versus modular too. Oh, we which will I definitely good. disagree. <laughs> good. All right, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll run it back soon then, guys. We'll start there uh, on the good part two. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. Take care. Thanks for having us.